This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. There's a lot of commentary about how Donald Trump is changing the Republican Party. There's even a cottage industry of former Republicans who often write about how Trump has allegedly ruined the GOP they once knew and loved. But according to Bruce Bartlett, a former senior White House economic advisor to President Bush 41, most of what today's Trump skeptics point to as something new in the party was there long ago. Bartlett had a falling out with the GOP in the early 2000s when he realized that its leaders were not interested in the fiscal conservatism that they promised on the campaign trail. That took him on a long road, one which led to him becoming a progressive. In this episode, we talk about Bartlett's ideological journey and also discuss his view of the current political situation. According to Bartlett, Democrats don't take politics seriously enough and they don't invest in the political infrastructure that conservatives have spent decades building up. The net effect, according to Bartlett, is that politics continues drifting rightward even though most Americans don't support large-scale cuts to the government. Well, before we get into your thoughts on the current political environment, why don't you tell us a little bit about your transformation from a conservative into a progressive? And I understand it started in, during the 2000s in the George W. Bush administration. Well, first of all, I'm not an activist. I don't, don't work in the field. You have to understand how people of my ill tend to operate in politics. That is, they never agree with whatever party they're affiliated with 100%. They always have issues on which they disagree. It's just that when you're part of the team, you don't advertise your disagreement. Keep them to yourself. You avoid writing about subjects where you'd have to, to be critical of your team and instead stick to only those subjects where you can take your team's side. And I certainly did a lot of that uh, back in the day. And, and I think also you, you tend to settle for half a loaf on tax policy, for example, is my specialty. And certainly there were any number of tax cuts that were enacted during the the early part of the Bush administration, that is the Bush 43 administration, that I didn't think were very good. But I sort of looked through these bills and found, okay, this provision is okay, and this provision is okay, and I just won't talk about these other provisions uh, that really are, at best, a complete waste of money. And so you do this on a constant basis. I've known some people who actually had to switch their their areas of, of expertise in order to get away from uh, having to write about subjects that would have put them off of the team and potentially uh, threaten their careers or more likely it would threaten their social life. If you work for a think tank in Washington, there's receptions and things of that sort going on very regularly and it becomes part of your social existence where you run into your friends and uh, get free drinks, the usual thing. And you don't want to get kicked off those mailing lists. And it may be that your personal friends, the people you invite to your house for party, things of that sort, are also people who are in the community. And so if you become ostracized, it threatens your wife and your children uh, will, to a certain extent, suffer as well. So I, I'm, I'm saying all this to explain that there's a kind of pressure that goes beyond just the economic, that you might get fired from your job. There's a lot of other stuff that goes on that enforces conformity, okay? So I knew all this, 
in 2003, the date that will live in infamy for me. At that time, I was considered myself a libertarian. I'd worked at the Cato Institute, was comfortable with that point of view. And so when, when the Republicans enacted the Medicare Part D legislation in November of 2003, I was just horrified. This was not what my party was supposed to be doing. We weren't supposed to be creating new unfunded entitlements. We were supposed to be trying to get rid of the ones we already had, or at least that's what I thought at the time. So I disagreed with my party about something my party did that I thought was inconsistent with what it said it stood for. Basis, uh, uh, and, and so instead of looking at things Republicans were doing as you know, the glass is half full, I started to see it as the glass half empty. And those issues on which I'd always had some disagreement with the party, but did rise to the level of causing me to leave, those issues started to have more prominence in my thinking. And I began seeing all these things that Republicans were doing that I thought were just wrong from a philosophical, conservative point of view. And everything that happened after that flowed from that one event. I was writing a syndicated column in those days. I started writing things that were more and more critical of the Bush administration. And, that, and, and keep in mind, I was always criticizing from the right. I was not in any stretch of the imagination, a liberal or someone from the left in those days. So so I felt like I was doing my job. But I noticed that, for example, National Review Magazine used to run my column on their webpage. And whenever I would write a column critical of Bush, they simply wouldn't run that column. So I started noticing a bit of censorship. And also I came under a lot of pressure from the think tank I was working for to ease up on Bush and stop attacking him personally. And so I, I started to become very frustrated. And I decided to channel my frustrations into a book about uh, the Bush administration, which came out 2005. And if, if you go through that book, you'll see that every single criticism and virtually every single authority that I cited in that entire book was a good conservative who, who was criticizing Bush for doing the things that I was criticizing him for. So I felt that no reasonable conservative could read this book and not be persuaded by it. And that was an extraordinarily naive <laughs> point of view. I didn't understand something that is often called epistemic closure, where you're just not allowed to criticize your side uh, for, for any reason whatsoever. There's a temptation among a lot of today's political observers to think that the Republican Party somehow changed dramatically with the ascension of Donald Trump. And that's just not true. And then the second one is that it is interesting that Trump does get criticism from Republicans on some issues nowadays. But it's curious to me that it seems to be limited exclusively to foreign policy and trade and nothing else. Well, they also don't actually do anything. It's just talk, and it's very muted. They don't emphasize it very much, if at all, when they're back in their states or their districts because people who make up the Republican electorate, they don't want to hear that stuff. They don't need primary opposition. So it's a very cowardly form of protest and criticism. And, of course, you've got any number of lickspittles like Lindsey Graham who once upon a time, criticized Obama for, for doing the exact same things that Trump is now doing, and who was one of the leaders of the impeachment effort against Bill Clinton and so on. He's just really a caricature of somebody, just an utterly cowardly politician with no backbone 
whatsoever. It's an interesting dynamic because if you look at the history of the Republican Party since Barry Goldwater and the people who helped him take it over, what you see is just periodic cycles of candidates arising who say, those other guys who said that they were the real conservatives, well, actually, they were, they're liberals, and I'm the real conservative. But that cycle doesn't seem to be happening with respect to Donald Trump anymore. No, I, I think a lot of it has to do with great sorting that took place over that time period. I mean, back in the 1960s, even the 70s, and, and, and into the 80s, both parties had a broad spectrum of members. There used to be very conservative Democrats. There used to be liberal Republicans. And what has happened over the years is that all of the conservatives have disappeared from the Democratic Party and become Republicans. And by the same token, all of the liberals and moderates who used to be Republicans have become become either independents or Democrats. So whereas at one time, I mean, obviously the Democratic Party has traditionally been the more liberal party and the Republican Party is the more conservative party. But now you have a situation in which all conservatives are Republicans and all liberals are Democrats. And so you've had infused into traditional philosophical differences a layer of partisanship on top of that. And, and I think that that has changed the dynamics between the two parties, and we're still coping with that. And the way political scientists talk about it is the word polarization, that everybody has sorted into their extremes. And unfortunately, what this means is the tails at the end kind of wag the dogs so that Democrats come across to the public in many ways as being more liberal than they really are, and and Republicans as more conservative. But those who disagree simply won't say anything. They lack the courage of their convictions. So going back, you felt some pressure to ease up on Bush, and you came out with your book. What was the, what was the reception to it on, on the right? Well, it was very interesting to me. Uh, first of all, I was fired from my job. No other think tank had the slightest interest in, in hiring me. Uh, I literally lost every friend I had in, in Washington. I mean, I, I, jo I kid you not, after the book came out, I could walk down a street in Washington and if, if, if I saw somebody I knew, they'd cross over to the other side to, to avoid me. There were incidents where White House officials would see me at a reception and do a 180 degree turn and walk in the other direction and things of that sort that, that I really found quite astonishing you know, given the nature of my criticism. But I think the way both sides kind of operate now is any criticism of your side gives aid and comfort to the enemy. It doesn't matter what the substance of your disagreement is or how respectfully you make the argument, you're still helping the other side. And that's the one sin that, that is unforgivable. Since that time, when did you start migrating leftward after that? In retrospect, it happened fairly quickly, although I was not conscious of it. By, tw by 2006, I'd, I'd given up on the Republican Party, and I live in the state of Virginia. You don't uh, register by party in Virginia. You just vote 
in whichever primary you feel like voting in. And, and that year I voted in the Democratic primary for the first time as a, as a way of kind of signaling my departure from, from the GOP. And pretty much ever since that time, I've been moving further and further to left. Now I find myself in more agreement with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren than any of the other Democrats, precisely because they're holding down the left wing of, of the Democratic Party, which I find myself very much in sympathy with. So you've said that you identify more with Warren and Sanders. Do you think that they can actually beat Trump? I mean, what are some of the weaknesses in, that they have in your mind? The main weakness they have is the absolute unity of the right and the Republican Party. Just saw a poll that showed that 83% of Republicans are very, very happy with, with Donald Trump. So you're going to have a, a very unified party to run against, and the right has a huge, huge propaganda echo chamber of which uh, Fox News and talk radio are the most visible. And we've seen in previous elections, such as one in 2004, when they swift voted John Kerry. And, and I think you're going to see the similar way of dealing with whoever gets the Democratic nomination. I think Democrats are foolish to think they can nominate a moderate and that that person won't be attacked for being a hard lefty. Whoever the Democrats nominate is going to be treated by Republicans as the second coming of Vladimir Lenin. And they should just understand that and accept it. And my own personal feeling is if you're a moderate, like, say, Joe Biden, and you're attacked for being a left-winger, your first reaction is probably going to be to say, no, I'm not a left-winger, I'm a moderate, and here are all these conservative things that I believe that, that prove that I'm a moderate, you see. And he may very well even also move further to the right to, to counter this criticism of him being on the far left. And I think that would be very dispiriting to the Democratic base, and I think the Democrats are going to need a good turnout. Republicans vote in higher percentages than Democrats. Democrats, every single election cycle, leave many, many millions of votes on the table because their people just don't get out and vote. And that's especially true among minorities. Now, to be sure, this is also part of the Republican strategy to try to suppress the minority vote any way they possibly can by purging the, uh, the registration rolls, forcing minorities to meet ridiculous requirements for ID and having almost no polling places in minority areas, tons of them in the white suburb, and lots of other stuff that they do to suppress the minority vote. And minorities complain about this and they file lawsuits, and but nothing ever happens. Uh, meanwhile, the Republicans win and, and they take office. So I think Democrats are going to need a big victory to be able to eke out a small victory. And, and also, you've got to be concerned about about uh, you know the down ticket races that are very important. A Democratic president with Mitch McConnell still as majority leader in the Senate isn't worth a whole uh, a lot. He's just going to block every single thing you do. So I think Democrats have to work on turnout more than anything else. And I think a more uh, a, somebody who comes out of the progressive wing of the party will be better able to respond to attacks on them because they're used to that. They, uh, even in the Democratic primaries, they've had to answer charges of being too far to the left. I think Elizabeth Warren in particular seems to me to be very well qualified to respond to what the Republicans are going to throw at her, more so, I think, than the other candidates. Okay, well, now you had mentioned Republicans being more likely to turn out to vote. Why do you suppose that is? Well, because 
Republicans are more inclined to look at every election as the only thing keeping us between liberty and, and slavery. They talk themselves into believing just the craziest thing about uh, Democrats. I mean, they, they, they still to this day talk about Obama as being the most left-wing president in history, which is just complete and utter nonsense. I mean, I wish that he had been much more left-wing. He was very, very moderate in, in his policies, too moderate in my opinion. And so this is another area where the left falls down. They, they allow the right to determine the narrative. And they do this through their control of the media. And part of that control has to do with them constantly attacking the mainstream media for being liberal when all they're doing is doing their job of reporting the facts. And as a number of people have noted, truth has a, a liberal bias. And so you, you look at any list of that divides up the various publications into right and left, and you'll see absolute centrist organizations like the New York Times, which actually bends over backward to give the right a voice in their paper, listed as a very left-wing publication. And that's just ridiculous. Meanwhile, the right has just tremendous, they're always creating new publications so that they can get more talking heads on TV in places like CNN, where just complete crackpots are constantly being uh, put on the air to promote propaganda. And then, of course, they, the left never complains that there are no liberals on Fox. They don't make the same argument, which they could very easily. said, well, look, if having both sides presented as, as a valid argument for getting crackpot right-wingers on CNN, how come Fox never has on any crackpot left-wingers? Yeah, I think that's true about Fox in general. However, Tucker Carlson seems to love having crackpot left-wingers on his show. But just to go back, I think there is a larger problem that television is putting forward people who really don't know what they're talking about. And I mean, you see that all the time. People are just getting up there and having a debate. And the facts don't even matter. It's just talking points. No, I think you're right. I, I, I noticed very early in the cable news era, of course, I was still a conservative back then, but I remember clearly one time debating the, the minimum wage on, on one of these cable shows, and the person they put me up against to debate was an honest-to-God, off-the-streets homeless person, you know? I mean, it was just, I, I refused to ever be on that network ever again. This was just ridiculous. But when I first started doing these shows, I'd often be on paired with some uh, scholar from, say, the Brookings Institution. And the problem was that we respected each other and we agreed on the data and what the economic science said. So our differences were rather nuanced rather than sharp. And they wanted sharp differences. So as time went by, I found myself less and less often up against somebody from Brookings and more often up against people who were labeled as Democratic consultant, Democratic strategist. And I never heard of these people. I had no idea who they were. In fact, I would sometimes look them up after I'd done one of these shows, and I couldn't find anything about them on Google. It's like they literally didn't exist. And the other thing I noticed is when these people came on, they never debated the substance of the issue. They would come on and make their talking points. And no matter what I said, they would just give the same rehearsed talking. And, and so I felt that this was just a complete waste of time. And so I gradually stopped doing these things. Uh, they're just a waste of time. I don't do cable TV anymore. And the net effect of all this is kind of actually worse on conservatives because they don't have institutions that do actual reporting. 
And so basically the people that they're putting forward to the public literally don't know what they're talking about. They don't do reporting. They just regurgitate things that Senate aides or House aides gave them. Or they just simply are finding articles and making their own take on That's not news. And they don't have any news outlets. Fox News, for the most part, isn't doing Well, for me, the sort of not knowing what they're talking about, that was kind of the last straw for me and my transformation out of the conservative movement myself. In 2015, I saw conservatives defending this law that was passed in Indiana that basically allowed people to be exempt from state laws if they could give some sort of religious rationale for it. And it was way, way excessively broad. And you could see that if you read the law. It was only two pages long. But when I would see conservatives defending the law or and debating it against liberals and moderates, they were saying it meant something completely different. It was much more circumscribed. But that wasn't the case at all. And at that point, I decided, well, I couldn't, I didn't know if they were incompetent or they were lying. I don't, I can't trust them. One of the things that the right has been very good about for the last couple decades is twisting language to promote their their agenda. And this was a, a perfect example because the term they used was religious freedom, which most people think at a first glance, oh, that's a good thing. That's why our country was founded, to give people the freedom to worship their own religion. But as you say, it's been twisted around to give a religious justification for discrimination. And and it, so it, it really means the opposite of what it originally meant. And they do this on so many other issues. Yeah. Since you had migrated yourself over to the left a bit, how receptive do you think that progressives and socialists, liberals, whatever you want to call them, have been to critiques of some of their behavior or policy positions? Not at all. Not at all. The main criticism I offer to those on the left is a lack of realism, a lack of toughness. I just feel like they're they're utopian that they're living in a dream world and that they're they're not tough enough to fight against the conservatives and the republicans they don't fight fire with fire they open themselves up to very easy simple critiques from the right they don't defend themselves at all they leave many fronts in the political battles undefended. It just drives me crazy. Like I noticed that a couple of conservatives, including Jonah Goldberg, has started a new right-wing journal or publication or whatever you want to call it. They have, they raised like $6 million for this effort. Meanwhile, this tiny little left-wing publication called Splinter was, was closed up shop. They've laid off all their staff, and it, it'll just disappear. A few months back, the Center for American Progress shut down Think Progress, which was a, a kind of liberal uh, media operation that they funded, and they just they hired, they got rid of all their, their reporters. It, it's like they're unilaterally disarming as the right continually rearms, and I, for the life of me, I don't understand it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I do think that there's a lot of blind faith among a lot of lefties that, well, the facts will prevail. The public will see the truth for themselves and that journalists will fact check everything and, and everyone will see the truth. But that's not the job of mainstream news journalists. They're not going to do that. Journalists are supposed to tell you what's happening they don't have time necessarily, especially in this news cycle of Trump. They don't have time to tell you everything that's not true and everything that is an exaggeration. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that to a lot of, of people on the left, the media, the mainstream media has a leftward 
tilt, just as conservatives have always said. Therefore, they don't need their own media. They just need the, the, the mainstream media to, to do their job better. The problem is, I think there was, I think the media did tilt left for a long time, but I think under the tremendous economic pressure that the media has been under the last 10 or 20 years, they've been forced to move to the center, and there really is no liberal media anymore. Probably the closest thing there is to an actual liberal mainstream media source would be MSNBC. And anytime anybody watches that, it's going to be sorely, uh, it's going to be great, very difficult to find a true progressive point of view on that network. So basically the left has disarmed and the right just keeps rearming. And, and the pressure, it affects the entire political spectrum because outfits like the New York Times and the Washington Post hire crackpot right-wingers to write columns for them. They give them op-ed space because they have to show both sides. Uh, but the right never does that. There's no token left-winger writing for National Review or Breitbart, and, and there never will be because that's not how the right thinks. Yeah, well, and along those lines, it's also true that I think there's a lot of lefties out there who might want actually want higher taxes or universal health care or more corporate regulations or accountability. But the mainstream press, the New York Times, the Washington Post, BC News, these are all owned by extremely wealthy companies, extremely wealthy individuals. And if those policies were put into place, well, Jeff Bezos might actually have to pay taxes and the Sulzberger family would have less money. So it's not really reasonable for them to be expected to support that. It isn't likely that they're going to get on board with that political program. I think one of the things the left doesn't understand that the right does understand is that you need to push the extremes to pull the middle a little bit in your direction. That is, you need to have people out there saying, let's abolish billionaires if, we're, if we have any hope of just raising the top rate a couple of points. And this is something the left doesn't understand. And it has to do with something called the Overton window, which has been pulled very, very far to the right over the last uh, 20-some years. And so views are, even those on the left think views that I would consider moderate are in fact left-wing. And the right is constantly working to pull the Overton window further and further to the right so that things that would be shocking a few years ago are now considered commonplace. I think there's also a bit of a tension on a larger scale between high-dollar Democratic donors who finance a lot of projects and a lot of politicians, elections, and PACs, is that if they were to support more progressive or further left economic viewpoints, it wouldn't be good for their bottom line either. And so that's why a lot of the focus in Democratic large-dollar donors is tended to be on social issues like LGBT rights, abortion, the environment, and they've, as a result, sort of shifted the party away from economic issues. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think there's a lot of problems with the way the left gets its funding. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is outfits like the Heritage Foundation go out and they get money not for specific projects, but for general support. And right-wingers understand that gives them more flexibility and makes them more effective, whereas progressives have a tendency to say, okay, I'll give you a million dollars, but it's for this one specific project, and that's the only thing you're allowed to use the money for. And most people who give money are not very good at figuring out what's, what's an effective argument, what's an effective issue, 
they're just interested in grinding their own ass. So they're, they're saying, oh, I've got the money, it's my money, I, this is what I want it used for, this is the only thing I want it used for. So you have lots of studies coming out of progressive think tanks that are completely useless and uninteresting, whereas conservatives are able to make just to changing circumstances and put things out that are more likely to have an impact. Why they behave this way, I don't know. Yeah, although going back to something you said at the beginning, you said that conservatives don't seem to believe in any actual agenda now. Not anymore, no. And so why do you think that is? And if they were to become more policy proactive, what would they actually do or would that never even happen? Well, I think a big part of the problem is simply that they achieved practically everything they set out to achieve. And they're used to being on the outside of of continually fighting against their own side to get policies adopted. I mean, all the time that I worked at the Heritage Foundation during the Reagan administration, our job was to attack Reagan for not being conservative enough because we felt that this would put pressure on him to adopt more conservative policies than he was inclined to do. But now, conservatives are not the outsiders. They're not on the outside looking in. They're in a position of power. They have the dominant position, and therefore they've adopted a more small-c conservative approach of holding on to their gains and uh, because there's really no place left for them to go in terms of policy. I mean, what area of policy has, other than things like privatizing Social Security, which Bush tried to do, I mean, there's not much left for them to do that is realistically possible under current political circumstances. So their whole thing is about fighting off those that would undermine conservative gains. Well, and I think that it's fundamentally destabilizing to American politics because essentially you've got a party that believes in nothing. And the only way it can be elected is through scaring people greatly about the other side. Yeah, yeah. I guess one of the other aspects of this sort of nihilistic conservatism that's prevailing on the right, I think, has also been that it's given rise to extremism, white nationalism. Did you ever encounter that type of person when you were in, on the libertarian side of things? Because I, I know that there are a, a number of them that were former Ron Paul advocates who decided mm -hmm. that. Yeah, uh, well, not really. I mean, they, they're certainly far more prominent today. I mean, mainstream conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation, Republicans in Congress, actively suppressed that sort of racism to the greatest extent they possibly could. I mean, I remember in 1980, the Republican Party held its convention in Detroit precisely because it was a heavily black city. They wanted to show their openness to reaching out to minorities. And somewhere along the way, I'm not sure when, they began reaching out precisely to those extremists on their side of the spectrum. And I think one of the things that kind of led them in that direction was the popularity of conspiracy theories. And what seems to happen a lot of times is you convince somebody of one conspiracy theory, whatever it is, and once they accept that one, they find themselves drawn kind of automatically to other people who believe other conspiracies, because it's very easy to believe a second conspiracy if you already believe the first one, and so on, till eventually you believe every conspiracy. And, and that kind of leads you into the, the fevered swamps of real serious extremism, leads to 
anti-Semitism because the Jews are responsible for everything. They control all the old anti-Semitic tropes that, that lead into various kinds of conspiracy theories and so on. And also Republicans, conservatives, have much more of a big tent philosophy than the left does. They feel like the vote of a racist is just as good as a vote by somebody who's not a racist. So why not get the, the racist vote? Let's reach out to the David Dukes. If it'll help us win an election, that'll help us cut taxes for the rich. We don't have to actually do anything these racists want, but of course that's naive. You start to rationalize policies that, that might not be motivated by racist views, but have racist effects. And you see this in a lot of court cases where they rationalize things like when the Supreme Court knocked out a, a big chunk of the Voting Rights Act. Now, they didn't do it for racist reasons, but it had a racist impact. And the people who may have been originally agitating for this change may have had a racist motivation. So it kind of spreads throughout the whole milieu once you allow it in, in the front door. Of course, those ideas had always been present. There were, after all, many people who believed that Dwight Eisenhower was a communist, and Joe McCarthy, of course. But they've managed to become much more prominent now. There was a period of time there in the 60s and 70s where some of the more responsible uh, conservative leaders, like Bill Buckley, uh, saw that these hard-right uh, extremists, uh, you know, the, the religious kooks and uh, the racists, uh, the anti-Semites, were a detriment to the political goals of the conservative movement, and they were suppressed. They were treated as illegitimate. Their views were not permitted to be to appear in mainstream conservative publications such as National Review or Human Events and other places like that. And, and so they kind of went underground, and they kind of disappeared until the Internet came along. And then what happened is these very obscure groups were able to put up websites very easily, and suddenly people who were isolated in their racist views suddenly discovered, oh, there's lots of other people out there who think the same way I do. And so the, the Internet became the way they became organized and became much more influential. Yeah, and of course that was how Donald Trump managed to build his political career on that with uh, his birther conspiracy stuff. And it's interesting that, that Fox News, while sort of publicly saying they did not believe in the birther conspiracy about Obama, they let they sure let people talk about it a lot. Yeah, they never repudiated it either or refuted it. They, this is a very common Fox technique. They let these people on to make unsupported, crazy assertions, and none of the anchors will say, well, do you have any proof for that? Where did you get that from? Or that's just nuts. And they don't do that because that would upset their viewers. And the, the effect of all this is to normalize extreme points of view and mainstream them into a much wider audience. So we've talked at length here about how far-right ideas have become more extreme. But do you see ideas like universal health care or some, some ideas perceived, at least in America, as more left-wing outside of this country, maybe not? They seem to be coming out forward a little bit more. Yeah, somewhat, uh, but that's, I think, because of democratic rate off, off of the team and potentially a threatened area where the left is very vulnerable, doesn't seem to know how to deal with it, and that's Israel. It's a real fault line where left anti-Semitism is seen and the more mainstream progressives don't really know how to respond to that. So 
both here and over in Britain, you see a lot of agitation, a lot of anti-Israel agitation that I think is, is very threatening to the political progress, the political success of those on the left. And it hasn't come up yet in the Democratic race, but I fear that it will. All right. Well, so just going back to the ideas, what are ways that people who have more progressive viewpoints could actually have them promulgated more and made into policy in your view? What are some of the things that they could do? Well, I think the most important thing that progressives need to do is take a longer term view. The people with money in the Democratic Party seem to have you know, unlimited sums to throw into campaign. I mean, Hillary Clinton raised more money than Trump did. So there, there's plenty of money out there, but it goes into campaigns. And if there's a special election, you find millions upon millions of dollars being thrown into races in Georgia where the Democrats had no chance whatsoever of being elected, whereas that same amount of money, if it had been put in progressive media organization or a think tank, that w would have much more effect. Or you see guys like Tom Steyer, he runs all these commercials that feature him. It's, it's very narcissistic. These commercials have absolutely no political impact whatsoever. So I, I just wish they would take a longer-term focus the way the right did. I mean, I've known the Koch brothers uh, since the 1970s. They were building organizations back then that eventually formed a foundation of organizations, various organizations, that capitalized on the Tea Party phenomenon and, and made it have vastly more impact than it would have without that foundation. And the left just adamantly refuses to do any of that. I don't understand why. They have extremely short-term focus that is not focused at all on building institutions, but instead is just throwing water at, at today's fire. They've been manifestly unsuccessful at this, yet they don't change. Yeah. Well, I think that's because the Democratic Party is sort of just a coalition of people who want particular problems addressed and not... Well, that's not, true on the right as well. Well, but, but not right nearly so that. much ideologically driven, I mean. Well, I mean, you know, I, for years I used to... You're probably familiar with Grover Norquist and this famous... Wednesday group that he has that meets at his offices, and every organization on the right in Washington is represented at this meeting, and it's where their marching orders are given, where they're told, okay, we have this issue we're promoting this week. We expect all the rest of you to support us because next week when your issue comes up, we'll support you. And so it's it's classic quid pro quo, back scratching kind of behavior. Yet to my knowledge. No one on the left has any any group meetings of this sort where the, the line of the day is, is laid out and everybody joins in so that they speak with a single voice. So, I mean, there's lots of things that the left could learn from the right that are not reprehensible. They're just politics 101. Yeah, part of me wonders if the lack of ideological heft or impetus in the American left because there is no large-scale international socialist organizations that are well-funded. Oh, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think you can date the decline and fall of the left to the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think that, for whatever reason, the left interpreted the fall of the Soviet Union as a general repudiation of their philosophy, at least insofar as economics is concerned. And this happened simultaneously with other stuff that was going on. I think to the extent there was a hard left in this country, and there never was much of one, 
but to the extent there was one, it just collapsed with the Soviet Union. And then once more moderate progressives, more moderate liberals and Democrats lost their anchor on the left, they began drifting rightward, partly for the reasons you've described. They all get their money from rich people. And so somehow or other we have to recreate a serious left-wing movement in this country in order to pull the, the, the moderates back in, in a leftward direction. To Unfortunately, to the extent there was a left, a serious left movement in this country, it was centered in the, the labor unions. And the labor unions have collapsed for economic reasons that had nothing to ideology. And so there's no natural base for the left to grow. Where, where's the soil? in which it can find the opposite of the Tea Party, the activists, the people who are going to go out and organize in their communities. There were some semblance of that with the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Black well, that's Lives, right. Black and the Lives Matter movement. the Democratic Party crushed it. <laughs> well, they did. And, and, then, and then I was going to say also Black Lives Matter. But Black Lives Matter as a movement has a very small organizing potential and then in terms of the issues that they advance, they've actually done pretty well at them. But it's a limited agenda, though, um, and so that you just can't do that much with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the one place you, you might be able to find some fertile soil is among uh, minorities, which, are, of course, are close to becoming the majority. But for some reason, the black community in particular just seems very uninterested in political act, uh, you sort of get the feeling that they think it's all futile, that we're talking about the same issues that we've been talking about for decades, and nothing gets any better, and I think they feel like we, gave, we, we elected a black president, and this was supposed to be the end result of all of our activism for the previous 50 years, and nothing happened. The situation of, of minorities at the end of the Obama administration wasn't any different than it was at the beginning. So I think they feel like, what's the point? And I think somebody needs to come along to inject some energy into the black community that leaders like Dr. King and Jesse Jackson and others used to be able to do, but there doesn't seem to be the leadership there anymore. The other thing also, though, is that, that black Americans are actually politically or ideologically very divided. Because if you look at polls, a very large percentage for one-third of them self-identify as conservative. And if you look at specific polls, like whether it's uh, same-sex marriage or abortion or universal health care, there is a very large contingent of black Americans who have economically and socially right-of-center views. But they can't find a home in the Republican Party because of its long courting of racists. Yeah. And so, so they are Democrats. And so there's this fundamental division that weakens black Democrats because they're greatly divided internally. Well, I think also that it's unfortunate, but the, the nature of the voting rights legislation has created the imperative for all black congressional districts. So, and this has very, very much aided Republican gerrymandering. You create one district in the central cities that's virtually 100% black, and this creates winnable mixed districts surrounding it that the Republicans can gerrymander to their advantage. I really think it would be better if, 
and and so as a result, you have political leaders who come out of these areas have no incentive to reach out to the white community or to even understand their issues. So you tend to get a kind of single-mindedness that is focused on very narrow issues related exclusively to the black community that don't relate to whites or people in suburbs or rural areas. Well, and then, of course, there are large economic issues where, and this is across all races, where people who are lower income have no ability to keep up with the news because they have to work 10, 12, 14-hour days in order to put food on the table. and, and, and Yeah, or they lack Internet access. They don't have cable. Probably don't subscribing to a newspaper. Would it be a real luxury? I think there's lots of reasons here, uh, but I think organizing could do a lot to, to help redress that. Yeah, so there's there are a lot of internal divisions that make it difficult for people who want to see more progressive policies from the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders has been unique in that he's a national politician that has been able to not resort to funding from millionaires and billionaires. To some extent, Elizabeth Warren has done that. But Yeah, no, I think, I think Bernie will be seen as a very important historical figure in helping to move the Democratic Party to the left and to give prominence and attention to a relatively hard left a point of view that has been absent in American politics for some time. But I think he's, unfortunately, I think his time has passed as a candidate. But I think Elizabeth Warren is... Is the beneficiary of that. I think she would otherwise not be viable except that Bernie plowed the ground for her in 2016 and, and now. But do you think either one of them understand the importance of the non-electioneering aspect if they actually want to implement their agendas? No. I mean, Bernie, uh, you know, supposedly was going to take his great fundraising mailing list or whatever you want to call it, you know, from 2016, he was going to create this organization that was going to continue to agitate for his agenda. And as far as I know, he didn't do anything. Uh, yeah, well, it's yeah, that's a good question. I wonder what happened to that. But I think we could talk about this for a long time. I don't want to. You, you had talked about unification among Republicans, and maybe let's just end on 2020. You're right. The polls show that a lot of Republicans are very satisfied with Trump. But at the same time, the Trump of 2016 and 2015 was economically much more to the center or even the left than the actual President Trump. And I think that that may be something that may be harmful to him. Oh, I don't think so. They have a very much of a circle the wagons mentality, and they're gonna you're gonna see very very little. I mean, what little dissent there is on the right against Trump is already out. You've got a couple of dozen so-called never Trumpers all seem to have columns in major newspapers, and that's all there is. You know, there's oh, the yeah, impression I, that there's a, a movement out there, and there really isn't. Oh yeah, no, I don't. Of, yeah, I don't mean that, that those guys. I mean that there are about three and a half, four million Obama and Trump voters who have, who thought he was more economically centrist than he ended up being. That they wouldn't maybe go vote for the Democrats, but they might just stay home. One of the things Republicans are very good at is, is injecting enthusiasm into to their electorate and Democrats uh, don't. They don't even try. So you end up with bland centrists like Hillary who don't excite anybody. I fear that Biden is traveling that same path. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's sort of going to be the the key po- thing to watch is how is each party dealing with the Obama-Trump voters and what are they trying to do to convince them? Because Democrats, I think historically, to the extent that they've tried to do things, they've tried to mobilize people to come out through organizing drives or get out the vote busing and things like that to churches and whatnot. But something they may want to say is, look, Trump promised you he wasn't going to cut Medicare. He wasn't going to cut Social Security. He was going to raise taxes on on the rich. He didn't do any of these things. I don't know? think that's why they voted for him. I think I think it was mainly voter fatigue. Histor- in the post-war era, each party has gotten a maximum of eight years, except for once. And I think there was just a lot of people who thought, well. The Democrats have been running things for eight years. Let's give the Republicans a chance. And I don't think they really focused on the policy issues at all. It was just, I don't know, I'm tired of these guys. Let's give the other guys a chance. Yeah. Well, if that's true, then, yeah, Democrats are going to have their work out, cut out for them. I think there's a lot of people who think that it's just going to be a shoe in for whoever Democrats end up nominating. And I don't think that's the case. Well, certainly uh, it won't be once the Republican noise machine begins cranking out its propaganda. The things they did to, to Hillary, they're going to do again. It won't be her emails. It'll be something else. I don't know what it will be, but I'm sure they have plans for all these things. I mean, you know that, that Warren's Native American heritage issue is going to be a big one. Trump has already made that a big issue. He calls her Pocahontas. There, That will have some effect on some people, and who knows what else they'll come up with. I've seen her being attacked because she used to be a Republican. I've seen her attacked for cases that she worked on when she was a lawyer. They have the greatest opposition research op group there is, and that's another area where Democrats do a very, very poor job. All right, I think we'll leave it there. My guest on this episode has been Bruce Bartlett. He's a former libertarian and conservative policy analyst and presidential advisor. And you can find his latest work on Twitter at Bruce Bartlett. I'm Matthew Sheffield, and this has been Theory of Change. Thanks for listening.